Amen. You guys may be seated. Well, welcome to Holmes Avenue Baptist Church. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful you guys would join us this morning as we continue in our time of worship through looking at the scriptures and studying God's word. I want to make sure you guys are aware that this is when we'll take of our tithes and offerings. I know we are not still passing the plates, but if you are led to give, you can give as you exit with one of our ushers, or you can give online at homesavenue.com forward slash give. So great options for you. However the Lord may lead you to give, we encourage you to give to support the ministries of what God is doing here at Holmes Avenue. Now, as we go into our text today, the title of our sermon today is The Prophesied Promises. The Prophesied Promises. What a tongue twister, right? And I picked the title. So it's a, such a tongue twister, but as we look at this passage of Scripture today in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see some of these promises that Peter is going to be addressing, these prophecies that God has made throughout the Old Testament. That he's going to be standing before the people of Israel and saying, you have heard these things said, you have heard these things studied, this is indeed what they mean, this is indeed what they are pointing to. Promises are such a unique thing in our world, right? That often we make promises and we have people make promises to us and we have the expectation that people are probably not going to fulfill the things that they've promised. That we live in a culture where people talk big but deliver very little. I encountered that this week myself with a promise that I made my son. As my son and I were spending some time together this week, we were talking and just dreaming about, hey, what are some of the things that we could do together? Some things that he and I can do just to enjoy one another's company, to, as he puts it, have a dude's day where we would together spend some time just enjoying each other's presence. And what I said to him was, hey, Perry, I promise you that we're going to go together. We're going to take a trip. You and I will do something. We'll do something special, just you and I. And as I sat down with my wife that evening and shared what I told my son, we began to look at the calendar. And as we looked at the calendar, we recognized a problem. That if you're like us, things just appear on your calendar and there are things you agree to go to. And as we looked at the calendar from next week on through the end of August, we have something every single weekend that we're supposed to be at. Every single weekend. It's crazy, right? That we're not even social people, but we have so many things we've got to go to and do. And as I looked at them, I recognized, well, th these are actually all things we need to be at. These are important. These are family events. These are church events. These are things we've got to go to. And as I looked at my wife, I recognized that I, I can either say, no, I'm going to let my son down until September, or we can commit to do something. And so just this Friday, Perry and I went up to Columbia, and we had a dude's day. So we went up that evening, we had, went to the Brazilian steakhouse, and he ate his body weight and meat. Let me tell you, when he saw them walking around with steak on a spit, his eyes were wide, like, wait, this is real life? We went to Dave and Buster's. We hung out and had hot chocolate and coffee. We ate waffles for breakfast, right? Like what more could an eight-year-old boy, eight boy dream of? It was an incredible time. We had so much fun. But one of the things that I heard as I talked to him and just spent time with him, hearing his heart and just celebrating him, is that throughout this time when I made that promise of, Perry, we will do this, never once did he doubt that we were going to do this. He never saw the problem of the schedule. He never saw the issues of how do we make this work. He never saw any of that. All he knew is that his father had said, I'm going to do this with you. And his response was, well, my father hasn't let me down yet. He'll take care of it. 
Perhaps you can see some of those connections as we're thinking about this passage today with some of the promises that Peter's going to be speaking about to the gathered people of Israel. You see, the gathered people of Israel, as they look at this passage from the book of Acts, as Peter's quoting the book of Joel, they are saying that these promises have not been fulfilled. The Father has not delivered on these yet. And Peter boldly stands before them and says, everything that God has promised, he has delivered. He has delivered these things through the Messiah named Jesus. And so as we look at this passage, I want you to keep that in mind, that God has made promises to his people, and he is out to fulfill those promises. Now, as we typically do here at Holmes Avenue, uh, we tend to gather to read the word as we study scripture. So if you would, would you stand with me as we read God's word together in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. And the word of the Lord says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh... And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for you today. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, may we remember that you have made promises to your people. That you have made promises to your people from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. That you will fulfill all things through Jesus. That you will make all things right through Jesus. That you will unite your people together through Jesus. So that one day we would gather around the throne celebrating you and your goodness, Father. That as we study the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, we see this grand story that you are a promise maker and a promise keeper. So Father, as we look at these scriptures today, may you deal with our baggage of broken promises from people in our lives. May you deal with our baggage of experiences that would draw us away from you. And would you let us look at what you are doing? Would you let us see you and who you really are through this passage of Scripture today? Father, we are thankful for you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. Now, as we begin today, this is a rather unique passage because this is a passage within the book of Acts, and the person who is beginning to speak in here, Peter, is actually quoting from the Old Testament. And so he's quoting from the book of Joel, and we'll see that in a few moments, but I want you to see that our first point is that God has promised power to witness. God promised power to witness. Now, as we look at this section of Scripture, we see Peter stepping forward here in verse 14. Look at it with me. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. 
men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter is here taking the lead as we look at this passage. And and throughout the early story of Acts, we're going to see Peter a lot in this section of Scripture. He's going to be kind of the, the lead storyteller in this section of the book of Acts. Now here we see, following up from last week, where the Spirit came upon the disciples and they begin to speak of the good things of God, the things that He has done for them, done in their lives. People gathered around to see this. There's some physical presence of the Holy Spirit, that there's a sound, that there's perhaps this physical vision of fire that comes down. But these people gather together to hear what the disciples are saying. They are proclaiming the things that God has done, and so they gather together. Now Peter takes the lead here, and standing with the other apostles, he begins to speak to this gathered crowd. Now, it says here that he began to lift up his voice and address them, and that's perhaps a little bit of an inaccurate description. The the best translation in the Greek here is that he declared to them. That he wasn't merely talking to them in a casual manner of, hey, did you catch the Braves game last night? No, he was speaking to them with authority, with power, as one who is an expert in what he is saying. That he's standing before them and saying, let me tell you what you've just heard. Let me explain to you what is occurring here. Now, you may look at this and you may think, well, Walter, these are two verses. And frankly, I don't see what this has to do with power, right? You you tell me that God has promised his power to witness. What does this have to do with anything? Well, first, I think we need to do a quick character study of Peter, right? That remember, this time frame is in Pentecost. This is just a few weeks, 50 days from the resurrection which is, of course, three days from the crucifixion. We're talking, we're about six weeks or so from the time period when Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, and he rose from the grave again. Now, we see a complete change here in Peter from that time period. If you remember him from a few weeks ago, if you're a student of the Bible, you recognize that Peter wasn't the same guy that we're looking at right now. You see, Peter wanted glory from his relationship with Jesus, right? Multiple times he seeks out praise over things that he's done or even stands before Jesus and argues why he should be the foremost disciple. Why he's the one that Jesus should build his kingdom on. That he stands before him and says, look at how great I am, Peter, uh, Jesus. I Remember, I was the only one that stepped on the water, right? Look at me. Look how incredible I am. Yet he was quick to deny Jesus when danger come. If you remember the crucifixion story as Peter is in the courtyard following Jesus around, three times he's asked, do you know this Jesus? Don't you hang out with him? Isn't this one of your friends? That he denies three times that he knows this Jesus. One of those times is even a little servant girl coming up to him going, haven't I seen you with this guy before? How much of a coward do you have to be to be afraid of a little girl asking a question, right? Peter denied Jesus three times that evening. And he walks away from this experience recognizing his failure. He walks away knowing that all the things that Jesus told me I was supposed to be, I'm not. Yet, who is he now? Who is Peter now? Well, as we see from our short time in the book of Acts, already we see that he's a leader. 
As we look in Acts chapter 1, as the disciples have gathered in the upper room, as they're waiting after Jesus has ascended, they're saying, what do we do? And Peter steps forward and he gives godly wisdom to the gathered disciples on what they should do. He counsels them on how to behave. He says, hey, we've got to replace Judas as a witness of what Jesus has done, of his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ministry, right? Let's select someone. Isn't this such a contrast to how he's acted in the Gospels already? That he's standing for him, and he's not saying, I must be the chief among you. He's simply stating, God has called us to do some things, and we must respond. We see here in this section of Scripture that he's bold. Right, That this is a man who just a few weeks ago was afraid for his life. That he denied Jesus in front of a servant girl because his fear for his life was that even this small child is a threat to me. That I've got to deny that I know Jesus because even perhaps she might put my life in danger by asking this question. You see, we'd seen some glimpses of who God was shaping him to be. Just as we saw when he stepped out on the water, right? That he was displaying faith that the other disciples didn't have at that moment. Yet we recognize that he wasn't there yet. That he wasn't quite the man that God has called him to be. But here, we see him step up and he declares with authority proclaims the truth about Jesus and the scriptures before a huge crowd. That even doing so may be perhaps signing a death sentence for him. And he stands before, as we know from later in this section of Scripture, over 3,000 people and boldly witnesses about the glory of God and what he has done. You see, indeed, the power that God has promised to us to come to witness us, the spirit that he has sent to us, this changes who we are. This changes into the people that God desires for us to be. That Peter has gone from someone who is seeking his own glory, who's denying that he has a relationship with Christ, to someone who's content to let Jesus be the star. Someone who's content to let Jesus be the authority. Someone who boldly puts his life on line to stand before a crowd and say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the gospel brings power to change us. Now, secondly, we see Peter do something here that he speaks with clarity and authority. You see, as he's speaking here, we've got to understand something about the apostles and and Peter in particular. That these are not what we would consider very well-educated men. That yes, they did speak several languages due to being traitors, but it was a normal thing within the culture to speak several languages. We recognize that they probably spoke Hebrew, they spoke Greek, they spoke Aramaic. They may have picked up a few words in some other languages, but we know they spoke multiple languages as many people did during that day. But here's the key. Peter had a very limited formal education. Now this is important as we look at scenes like this. You see, Peter doesn't have any real formal training in speechcraft. He's never taken a public speaking class. He's never had a sermon class like I have. He's never had multiple Bible exposition classes, right? I'm not bragging, I'm just stating I've had training, right? Peter's had none of that. In fact, as we look at the apostles, none of the apostles, until we get to Paul, have any type of training. Paul's a trained Jewish religious leader. Paul has training, he's got some eloquence, but none of the apostles have any type of formal training in speaking before people. 
Yet Peter stands before the gathered crowds, proclaiming the truth of Jesus and what he's done. You see, not only is he doing so, standing before them, proclaiming the truth of Jesus, but he's doing so in a compelling manner. He's interesting. You see, in verse 14, he gets a direct call for attention. He addresses them and says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. See, he calls for their attention and says, Look at me, you need to hear an explanation for what just happened. Not only does he call for that, we see in verses 40 and 41 later on that he gets that attention. They focus in on what he's saying because they say, I've got to know the answer to what's happened. See, verse 15 even shows us that Peter even makes some contextualized opening. You see, they've made the accusation that this is happening because these people have to be drunk. And he essentially makes a joke that's saying, guys... It's only the third hour in the morning. We don't start drinking till noon, is essentially what he's saying. He's making a joke, making light of it, addressing the reality of, you've got a concern, an accusation. Let me respond to that. You see, this tells us he's not just giving a prepared speech, right? He's addressing specific questions and concerns that the people who've gathered have. Now, why is all this important? Right? Like, what's the point of recognizing that God has promised power to his people in order to witness? You see, we see a clear example of believers receiving this power when they're witnessing. You see, Peter stands before the crowds and gives a bold declaration of the Messiah. He's no longer denying Jesus, but he's clearly proclaiming that he's on Team Jesus, that he's making clear where he stands. Next week, we're going to have a baptism service, so we'll see two people be baptized before our congregation, before the world. And as we do this baptism service, one of the things that you'll recognize when we are going forward in baptism, what we are saying is that we are clearly identifying with Team Jesus, that we're wearing the jersey as the language goes. And what we're doing with baptism is that we are leaving no ambiguity about where we stand. You are either in or you are out. There's no in-between. There's no straddling the fence. We are on Team Jesus or we are not. What we see here is that God has promised in Acts 1.8 that believers would have power to witness about the work of Jesus. We see that promise being fulfilled right here. We see that promise being put on display right here. This is a promise that you and I should cling to as believers. That you and I should hold tight to this promise, recognizing that God has not finished fulfilling this promise. You see, I want this to be an encouragement to you and I, that regarding sharing the gospel, God can take any of us, right? God can take any of us regardless of our education, regardless of our training, and use us to proclaim the truth of who He is. You see, just as we see here, he can give us the words to say and the confidence in him to faithfully witness. So often I hear from people as we talk about how to share your faith, how to talk about what God has done in your life. The common refrains I get is, the most common one perhaps, is that I don't know how to answer questions. That's a real fear, right? We've heard some crazy questions, right? Like my son asked weird questions like, why do T-Rexes have short arms? I don't know. And you know what I say to him? 
I don't know, Perry. Why don't we look that up? Why don't we ask someone who knows that answer? Let's go down to the Natural History Museum. Let's go see what's going on. You know, let's go talk to one of my professors at CSU, right? Maybe they know why the dinosaurs have short arms. You see, what I'm trying to demonstrate there is that I don't have all the answers. You will never study enough to have all the answers to every question or concern people will bring to you regarding the faith. Yes, we can anticipate some common refrains. Yes, we can wrestle with some real theological questions before we go into these conversations. But sometimes the healthiest thing to do is to simply say, I trust that God will do more with my I don't know than with what I can make up on the spot. You see, if we are confident that God will provide power in witnessing to change the hearts and minds of people who are involved in this conversation, we can approach sharing our faith with confidence and assurance that God will do something. That if we believe the promises of passages like Isaiah 55, where it tells us that the word of the Lord will never return null nor void, then we trust that whatever He is doing in the midst of sharing the gospel, that it's accomplishing His plan and His purpose. That it is doing precisely what it is that He's put before Him. And one of the things we've got to recognize is that, frankly, if we want to see God move, we've got to go where He is moving. That if the Scriptures make it clear that power from God comes when we witness, then we need to go witness. That we need to put ourselves on the line and say, God, you are holy and majestic and powerful. That I'm going to trust that you are going to be a promise keeper when I proclaim the good news about what Jesus has done in my life. Perhaps this means that we should seek to witness and share the gospel with people over the next few weeks to simply see his power on display in our lives. Perhaps we need to rest in this promise, remind ourselves of this promise daily, that God will bring power when we are witnessing in his name. Now, Peter doesn't end his statement there simply saying, listen, he continues to speak. He continues to tell the gathered people about what God has promised and what he is doing. You see, our second point is that God has promised that the Spirit would come. God has promised that the Spirit would come. Look with me at verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now Peter continues his sermon here, and he's explaining that God has promised the Spirit to his people. That he's saying that what you've just seen of these tongues of fire and this sound like a train coming through, these things that have occurred, this has happened because God has promised to his people that the Spirit will come. See, Peter, through the inspiration of the Spirit, does a deep dive into the Old Testament to show the gathered crowds that God has always intended for the Holy Spirit to come upon his people. You see, here in this section, he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. 
And he's using this to demonstrate what God has promised to his people. Now, maybe you don't know who Joel is. Joel is a minor prophet. He's one of the 12 minor prophets within the Old Testament. We use the term minor prophet to refer to the length of their books, not how important they are. So it's a shorter book, only about three chapters or so within our Bible. We don't know much about Joel or the time period that he was writing, but what we do know is that he was writing during a time of disaster for the people of Israel. It's a time of plague and famine, of invasion. And what he's writing about is that he's calling the people to repent before the Lord. He's saying these things that are occurring, they're occurring because we are in sin. We've not kept our end of the covenant promise. If we repent, God will relent. Now verses 17 and 18 here are uh, almost direct quotations from Joel. Uh, Peter changes some of the language just a little bit, but they're also just building upon themes that we find in the Old Testament. You see, one of the themes that is being established right here is you perhaps might remember this idea of covenant from the book of Leviticus. See, the Old Testament covenant relationship that we see described is that God and Israel are together in covenant. There are two sides to this covenant relationship. that We recognize that it all rests upon God to fulfill this, but the people of Israel have a role to play in this covenant. That in this covenant in the Old Testament, they're to love, serve, and obey God completely and totally. That they are to give their whole devotion, their whole attention to God, to worship Him, to make much of His name, to spread His name across the earth. Yet, as we study the Old Testament, we see that they fail to do this. That you can pick almost any story from the Old Testament. And what do we see? We see the same cycle repeating throughout the Old Testament of sin, judgment, repentance. Things are good. Then sin, judgment, repentance, then things are good. And then it just repeats over and over throughout the Old Testament. Because the people of God, the people of Israel, are not keeping their end of the bargain. That they are not fulfilling their part of the covenant. That they've said that God, you are who you say you are, and so we're going to keep our faith with you. Yet what do they do every time? They run away. I'm in a discipleship group with a friend here, and as we were looking at the book of Hebrews this week, we were looking at some of the language that the writer of Hebrews used about Moses. And we look back at the Exodus story, just trying to get our bearings on what's happening here as the writer of Hebrews is referring back to Exodus. And we realize something that when we look back at the Exodus story, when Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the full law from God, he's up on the mountain, we don't know how long he was up there, but he was up there long enough for the people of Israel to say, he's got to be dead. Right? He hasn't come back yet. He must be dead. And the people of Israel, rather than saying, perhaps we should send Aaron, the high priest, to go find him. Maybe we should call out to God and see where is Moses. Maybe we should just do something that would be a, a normal, sensical thing to do. Rather than do what would perhaps be common sense, what do the people of Israel do? They look to Aaron and say, Moses is dead, make us a god. And Aaron, rather than doing the rational thing of going, maybe we should check, right? Like, maybe things are okay and maybe he's just taking too long. You know, maybe he's in the bathroom, on the phone. I don't know, something's not normal here, like whatever. 
Aaron's response isn't to do any of that. Aaron says, give me all your gold. I'll make you a golden cow. Here we are just a few short days from the Red Sea where they've looked back and they've seen Pharaoh and his armies coming and they look to Moses and they go, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die? And Moses says, watch and see what God will do. He parts the Red Sea and all of the nation of Israel crosses and Pharaoh and his forces are still drowning at the bottom of the Red Sea. You see, just a few short days after that miracle, they turn around and say, we've got to have a God because that one clearly isn't it. You see, what we see displayed here throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and in our lives today is that the primary problem the people of God have is their sinful hearts. The primary problem that we as people have is our sinful heart. No matter what it is we do, no matter what changes in our lives, we are still sinners. We are still going to have moments in our lives where we choose to do the things that we want rather than the things that God would want. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 makes it very clear of what God is promising to do to his people's lives. Deuteronomy 30, chapter, uh, chapter 30, verse 6 reads, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, this verse tells the people that their physical circumcision is only a sign of the covenant. That it's done to clearly demonstrate that you're united with God. This alone is not going to enable them to keep the covenant. Rather, what they need to experience is not a physical circumcision, but a spiritual circumcision. They need to experience heart change from the Spirit of God dwelling in them to see their end of the covenant fulfilled. Now you might say I'm taking this out of context. Maybe this is just one verse that's perhaps supporting what Peter is saying here. No, this is a refrain we see repeated throughout the Old Testament. I've cherry-picked two sections for you, but Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, make this very clear. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, God is promising right here through the prophet Ezekiel that one day he's going to bring to his people a new heart. That he's going to cleanse them by the spirit. We as believers are sitting in this fulfillment of that covenant promise that God has brought a new heart to dwell inside of us. This is the process of regeneration, that we were not just merely given a stimulant and brought back to life. No, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians. We were dead. We needed a resurrection, not a revival. And what we see here from the writer of Ezekiel is that God has promised to bring a new heart to His believers, to bring life to those who are a part of the new covenant. 
Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34, give us some additional language and nuance. Jeremiah writes, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see, the heart that is promised by God in the book of Deuteronomy, that was talked about in Ezekiel, that was spoken about from the prophet Jeremiah, this is the heart that will come through the Spirit. This is the promise that has been made throughout the generations from God that He will send His Spirit to change the heart of people. Now these verses also give us some context to what's happening here in the later half of 17 and 18. You see in the later half, that it shows us that the Spirit's going to break down social boundaries and barriers. You see, this scene that is depicted here in Joel that Peter is quoting from is one that all people, regardless of their social standing, are united by the Spirit. That these age groups, these social groups, they don't normally relate to one another in the culture that they're in, particularly in an equal way. You see, in this culture we see that men are set above women. Old are set above young. Anyone, man or woman, was greater than a servant. Yet, we see a unity occur through the Spirit that is contrary to the culture. We see a unity occur in the Spirit that is contrary to what the culture has established. You see, one of the things we've got to recognize that is a truth we find today is that just as the people of Israel desire to find unity through rigid social order, we live in a world that desires to find unity through that same rigid social order. That we live in a world that makes value statements about people based upon your identity, right? That if you believe this, then you are someone who has got a say in culture. That if you value this, then you're someone who can speak within our culture. That really the language we hear and we see that you should just be who you want to be and we're all okay with that. We're all going to be okay with that because I'm being who I want to be as well. You see, the reality is that the culture is saying, stay true to yourself provided what you're staying true to is acceptable to me. Now the truth is that the scriptures make it clear that who we desire to be when left to our own thoughts and desires... The person that we want to be like is an unrepentant sinner. You see, when left to our own devices, we desire to pursue sin. We desire to pursue things of this world that will bring temporary pleasure and satisfaction to us. It is only by the grace of God and His Spirit dwelling in us that we can find true unity. Unity that is not defined by the things that we affirm within our culture. Unity that is not found by tolerance and acceptance, but unity is found as defined by the Spirit. Unity that is defined by one God, one Lord, one Savior, one baptism. 
This unity that is marked by our service and commitment to the God of the universe. You see, no other thing or idea will bring unity like the Spirit has in the church throughout generations. You see, as we look back on church history, we recognize there have been divisions, there have been fractures, there have been transitions and things that we perhaps believe within the church. Yet one thing that has remained constant throughout all that time is that the church has consistently sought to be faithful and unified to God. That even if they've ended up on different sides of an issue, the core spirit is that they've desired to be faithful to the things of Christ. Perhaps we should continue to labor for that same spirit today. That the thing that unifies us is Jesus. The thing that brings us together is Jesus. The thing that unites us as believers is Jesus. Now, as we look at this, Peter is not finished with his sermon. He has a few more things to say to us in this section. And we see that he's addressing this idea that God has promised Jesus will return. God has promised that Jesus would return. Look with me at verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, a great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, Peter concludes this section with a statement on the end times. And I know that it may seem unusual for Peter to address this during his sermon, but it's a very specific, relevant topic. You see, Luke, the writer of Acts, and it would seem Peter as well, they believe that the time of fulfillment began with Jesus' miraculous birth. What that means is that Jesus' birth is the beginning of the end for sin and death. That when Jesus is born, that this is inaugurating the new covenant. When Jesus is born, this is the moment when we move from this period of waiting towards the time of the return of the Messiah. Towards the time when God, through Jesus, will make all things right again by ending sin and death. By killing Satan and casting him into the lake of fire. By making all things new and right before him. You see, the language here points to that, that the, the wonders above and signs below, they're anticipating the arrival of the end. William Barclay suggests that this is everything from Jesus' supernatural birth and miraculous activity to His resurrection and ascension, to His outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, to the miraculous events recorded in Acts, to the present-day establishment of the church itself. You see, what Mr. Barclay suggests is that the fact that the church has sustained itself to today would tell us that God is still working to fulfill this promise. You see, all of this, these signs and wonders, this blood, fire, vapor of smoke, all of this is pointing to the day of the Lord. This was the return of Jesus to judge all the earth. There's no real reference of time passing here between the pouring out of the Spirit and return of Jesus. Like It doesn't give us a calendar and saying approximately 300 years from then, Jesus is going to return. Yet, Joel and the writers of the entire Bible make it clear that a return will happen 
after a pouring out of the Spirit. You see, what Peter is doing is that he's showing us the signs of the end are all around us. That he's calling out the reality that if indeed Jesus is who he says he is, and that God has fulfilled this promise of bringing power to witness, if God has fulfilled his promise of bringing the Spirit upon his people, then one of the promises we know to come is that he's promising Jesus will return. We see that even in the book of Acts earlier in chapter 1, where those angels appear beside the disciples that are looking at Jesus' ascend and they're saying, why are you still here? He's going to return in the same way that he ascended, coming down from a cloud from above. See, Peter is making it clear to the gathered crowd, to us as we're reading this, that the end is coming, whether it's in our lives, our future years, our grandchildren's lives, whatever it may be, the end is coming. And that if this is true, if it is true that the end is coming, then we need to take heed to Peter's cry here. One of the things that is challenging when you start referencing the fact that time will end is the reality that people want to deny that no, time will not end. Yet every belief system on earth that you find has an end time built into it. Even pure atheism, at its most pure, that would say there is no God, says that our world will end. That is, my physical world. That when I die, I cease to exist. That they would even acknowledge a scientific reality that our universe is slowly dying, bit by bit. And they would say, unless something halts that decay, it's going to pass away. The reality is that every single belief system on earth says that it is going to end. The part that they argue about is how is it going to end and what's to come afterwards. So perhaps you're here and you're saying, I'm not sure that it will end. No, you're sure that it'll end. The part that you're arguing about is how will it end and what's going to happen afterwards. You see, what Peter would suggest to us is that it is going to end and that he's making this note that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, he's speaking to people who've gathered together and many of them have assumed that they're in right standing with God because of their religious activity. And we need to be clear, just as Peter was in this chapter, that religious activity is no substitute for a personal saving relationship with Jesus. That it does not matter the things that you do for Christ if you do not know who Christ is. And that Peter is making clear, he spends the rest of his sermon, the remainder of chapter 2, addressing this one thing. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And what is the name of that one who can save? His name is Jesus. That Peter spends however long the rest of his sermon takes, pointing to this Messiah. This one who just a few short weeks ago walked these very streets with his disciples. This one who was kidnapped from a garden, hustled over to the Roman official who could find no fault in him, who even tried to bargain for his life recognizing his innocence. Yet these same people who've gathered here to hear the truth of the Messiah cried out for his blood. 
Listen to Jesus who went to the cross, an innocent man, bearing the weight of sin and shame for us. Who hung upon the cross for the appointed time, struggling to breathe, to hold himself up so that sin and shame could be paid in full. This is the Jesus who gave up his spirit, who let his body go into the tomb for three days so that he could rise again and fulfill all the promises that God has made. This same God who proclaimed from the beginning of the Bible when man sinned that there's going to come a day where Satan will wound his heel, but Jesus will crush his head. You see, on the cross, we see the great reversal where Satan is cackling with triumph. I've won. Victory is mine. Yet he signed his death warrant knowing that Jesus would return. You see, Peter is simply proclaiming the one who can save. The one whose blood will never lose its power. The one whose love will never fail. And the one whose name will never cease to save if we call upon him. You see, he's speaking of the name of Jesus. And I assure you today that that blood still has power. That his love has never failed yet. And that his name will still continue to save today. And what you and I have opportunity to do is to cry out to God. To call upon this name of Jesus and say, forgive me for I have sinned. I've walked away from the things that you've called me to do, Lord. I've rejected the good things you've put in front of me. I've chosen sin and death. But you were offering life. You were offering grace, mercy, and forgiveness. You see, today, you and I have an opportunity to call upon the name that will always save. And so I simply ask you this. Will you call upon the name of Jesus today? Will you call upon the name of the risen Savior and seek life through him? Here in the next few minutes, you'll have opportunity to do so. That we'll go into a time of prayer and I'll be quiet for a few moments so that you can go to the Lord on your own behalf. So you can seek Him and whatever it is He may be saying to you. Whether it's repentance, whether you have questions and doubts, whether there's things that you need to just cry out to Him and ask Him to move in, this is your opportunity to do so. I'll then close us in prayer and our worship team will lead us in one final song of worship and rejoicing in the goodness of God and how He is still faithful now. If during that time, if you want to speak to someone, I'd love to hear what God's doing in your life to celebrate the things that He's doing and shaping, what He's changing you into. You can come speak to me during this time. I'll be at the door at the back as well. I'd love to hear what God is doing in your life. But if I may, could I have the pleasure to pray for you one more time today? Would you bow your heads with me?
Father, we come before you as people who are seeking that wherever we are in our spiritual journey, whatever it is that we're wrestling with, we're all seeking something to bring fulfillment to us. We're all seeking something to fill this hole inside. That this, this hole that we're trying to fill bring, manifests itself in different ways. Maybe we're wrestling with heartbreak. Maybe we're dealing with sadness. Maybe we're obsessed with pleasure. Maybe we're simply just wondering, what's the purpose of it all? And Lord, that these things, they will be temporarily pleased. They will be temporarily satisfied by the things we find in this world that would give us some momentary pleasure. Yet, Father, it leaves us wanting more. We need more of it. Just as an addict would cry out for more of their drug of choice, we need more. And we can never have enough to satisfy us. And Father, into this void, into this gap, you speak life. You interject yourself through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That you cry out to us that this hole in our heart is not just any hole, but it is a cross-shaped hole. One that can be only filled by the resurrected Savior. By the one who would shed his blood and die for us for our sins and iniquities. For the one who would give his life so that we could have life. So Father, I ask that today perhaps that we would let Jesus take his rightful place in our heart. That you would fill this hole in our heart with Jesus. That through the Spirit, you would give us a new heart, one that is beating and alive, that is capable of worshiping you and following you, Father. Lord, may we call upon the name who never ceases to save, the name of Jesus. May we find forgiveness in sin. May we find mercy and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Father, would you move in our hearts today? Reveal your truth and your majesty to us, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.